Good morning, Rock Hills. This is indeed our last day on the summer road trip, and I thought what we would do, spend a day together just taking a day off to read a book. Now, for some of you, this would be like reading a book on the beach, but I kind of feel about the beach kind of like Al feels about camping because I don't get the romance of sand To me, sand is a gritty pestilence (laughs) that never goes away. And the idea of getting sand in a book that I like is like horrible. But for those of you that grew up on the beach and you can think of nothing else but being on the beach, think of it as reading a book on the beach. I'm going to be at the lake, okay? Reading at the lake, no sand. I'm on the porch, I can hear the water, but no sand. So the book I'm going to read and talk about today is called The Silver Chair. And it's a book from the Chronicles of Narnia. This is a series of books written for children, but I loved them as a kid, and I like them even now. In fact, I read through them about once every five years or so. You may be familiar with them because they were made into movies, or at least three of them were, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and Prince Caspian, and The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. This is the next book in the sequence of Narnia. I've read that it's being made into a movie. And the reason that I really like these books is, in addition to being great books on their own, they really point us toward living the Christian life, believe it or not. When I was a kid, I knew a lot of people that read these books and had no idea that there was a second meaning to them, but they are. It's pretty clear. I mean, let's think about The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. This takes place in a land called Narnia. It's kind of a magic land. There are talking animals. Not all animals talk, but they're kind of like people, and there are also humans and like nymphs and satyrs and centaurs and things. But in this book, a human commits a crime or a treason. He is, owes his life because of this treason to the ruler of the land, the evil witch who rules the land. But Aslan, the lion, comes, trades his life for the boys, is humiliated and executed, and rises again to save someone who committed a sin. Maybe a little Jesus-like, right? In fact, in throughout these books, Aslan is very much a metaphor for Jesus. And the book we're going to talk about today is The Silver Chair. And I really like this book because it points us to the importance of remembering who we are in Christ during the week and not just on Sunday. It's so easy to get distracted during the week and forget who we are. And this book helps us uh, remember. So this book starts out with uh, a boy and a girl, Jill and Eustace. What a great name, Eustace. Um, But Eustace has been to Narnia before and Jill hasn't. And they're being bullied in their school. And just before the older kids come to wallop them, they are called by magic into Narnia, are actually on a mountain high above Narnia, with a giant cliff that drops for a 1,000 feet. And now Jill and Eustace are 12, so they tend to scuffle with each other, even though they're friends. And Jill knows that Eustace is terrified of heights. So she starts messing around on the edge of the cliff and loses her footing a bit. And Eustace, in his attempt to save her, falls over the edge. And immediately, a lion, Aslan, the one that represents Jesus, comes galloping from the woods comes, bends over the cliff, and it's through magic in the books. He blows on Eustace, and he floats instead of falling all the way into Narnia. But then the lion has a conversation with Jill. And I want to say just a few words about this. So Ashley Villalobos, who is a fantastic artist, I asked her, would you draw some pictures for me for this sermon? And she said, sure. I'm going to show you these pictures. I gave her two sentences 
and she came up with these, and they're absolutely amazing. It's very exciting to me that she did this. So Aslan has a conversation with Jill, and the first thing he does, which he does in all the books, is make her admit that she is the reason Eustace went over the edge, because Aslan never lets you get away with blaming something else on somebody else for something you've done. But then he explains to her why he called her and uh, Eustace into Narnia. It's because he has a mission for them. The prince of Narnia has been missing for 10 years, and many think he's dead, but he's not. And it's her job, along with Eustace, her mission to find the prince and return him to his father's house or else die in the attempt to do so. It's very serious, a very serious mission that he gives her. But he does give her some help. He gives her four signs that she is to follow, she and Eustace are to follow along the way. Number one, when they first get into Narnia, Eustace will see somebody, an old friend, and should talk to him right away because that friend will give him help on the journey. And the second is they're travel, to travel north out of Narnia toward the land of the giants into the ancient city of the giants. Third, when they get the third sign, when they get to that city, they will see some writing on a stone and they need to do what that writing says. And fourth, they will know they have found the prince because he will be the first person they meet who asks them to do something in the name of Aslan. He will be the first person to say that. So these are the signs, but it's interesting the emphasis that Aslan gives to the signs because I think it's the same emphasis that God gives to us to know the Bible. The signs are like the Bible. Let me read you what Aslan says to Jill. First, remember, remember, remember the signs. Say them to yourself when you, walk in the mor- when you wake in the morning and when you lie down at night and when you wake in the middle of the night. And whatever strange things may happen to you, let nothing turn your mind from following the signs. Secondly, I give you a warning. Here on the mountain, I have spoken to you clearly. I will not often do so in Narnia. Here on the mountain, the air is clear and your mind is clear. As you drop down into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take great care that it does not confuse your mind. And the signs which you have learned here will not look as you expect them to look when you meet them there. That's why it's so important to know them by heart and pay no attention to appearances. Remember the signs and believe the signs. Nothing else matters. Very clear. It's what God tells us about his word, the Bible. We should know his word and the Bible well so that when we encounter life's difficulties, we will know his instructions his signs. In Psalm 119, 105, it says, your word, the Bible, is a lamp to my feet and a light on my path. Psalm 119, 11, it says, I have hidden your word, the Bible, in my heart that I might not sin against you. And in Deuteronomy 11, verses 18 to 20, it says, fix these words of mine in your hearts and your minds Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Very important, God says, to know his word. We should know it well so that we, when we encounter life's difficulties, we will know his instructions, his signs. That's one way we can remember who we are during the week and not just on Sunday. Now back to the story. Um, Jill goes down into Narnia, again being Aslan's magic breath. She goes into Narnia 
And they meet. Remember, Eustace is still grumpy at this point because she's the reason he fell off the mountain, right? So they meet up and they kind of scuffle and she forgets to tell him about the signs and they miss that old friend. So they miss the first sign. But still they are able to get some help and start on a journey northward. Um, They have a companion that I won't talk about, but he's great in the book because he's very much like me, a worst case scenario person, you know? If it's raining outside, he's like, at least we won't burn up in a fire. That's the good news. You know, so I relate to this guy, but I won't talk much about him. But they started their mission, and along the way, they learned a little more detail about what happened to the prince. So the prince and his mother, the queen, and some royal courtiers or whatever are out in the forest having, just making merry, having feasts and stuff. And the queen is off by herself in a meadow, and a serpent with dazzling green, sparkling skin comes, bites her on the hand, and she dies. And the prince is set on vengeance and goes every day to search for the serpent. But the prince's friend starts to wait. Your horse does not look like a horse that's been galloping all day. And so one day the friend goes with the prince, and the prince has been going every day to that same meadow where the queen was killed. And there was a woman there in a sparkling, uh, dazzling green dress who was very beautiful. And the prince just gets off his horse and stares at her. And she beckons him, and he doesn't come, at least not when the friend is there. And the friend knows this can't be right. This doesn't feel right. This feels like bad thing happening. He almost tells the king he doesn't. The prince goes off the next day and never returns. So that's what happened to the prince, and that's what their journey is. And as they're learning it, they're on a very long journey, and they're hungry and tired, and it's turning into winter. It's turning cold. They're pretty miserable physically. And along the way, on their weary journey, they meet up with some other travelers. They meet up with a beautiful woman wearing a sparkling, dazzling green dress and a knight who is dressed all in black and you cannot see his face and he doesn't speak. And this lady in the dress, she speaks with a very lovely tone, a very royal tone, and gives the children advice that they should go to the house, to the castle of the friendly giants. Because when they're there, they will get hot food and warm beds and nice clean clothes and baths. And the children begin to forget the signs because they are so distracted by the idea of comfort that they just can't think about their mission anymore. Now, I think sometimes it's very easy. It's certainly I am talking to myself. It's very easy for me to get distracted about the mission God has given me. I've got kids going to college, man. I've got to make sure everything's in place for that. I've got all kinds of stuff happening at work. I've got to drive to work in Austin. And all this, you know, It's easy to get distracted from what our mission is. Jesus said that some people, when they hear the message of the gospel, get distracted Jesus, says, Jesus gives a famous parable where um, the, he says that people respond to the gospel like seeds being planted on different types of soil. And so in Luke 8.14, it says, he talks about the seeds that fell among the thorns. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. 1 John it also 2.15, it also says, don't love the world or anything in the world. If you love the world, if you're distracted by it, the love for the Father is not in them. It also says, and this is in Proverbs, this is actually the proverb that we have today in our proverb reading, Proverbs 6, and this is 
when I used to work at summer camp, they would yell this at us when we overslept. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? How long, when will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty will come on you like a thief and your scarcity like an armed man. The Bible warns us, don't get distracted. Don't be so focused on comfort that you forget your mission. Mission. It's very easy for us to become distracted. How we live our, know who we are during the week is to not be distracted and to remember our mission. Now at this castle that the uh, kind lady on the horse sent them to, it's actually a very dangerous place for the children, but they do end up seeing the writing on the stone, and I'm not going to explain it here because it would take too long, but it's very cool how it is a writing on the stone, but it's not what you think it is. And what that writing tells them is that the mountain that they've just come down to get to this castle, they need to somehow get under it or in it. And they're very confused by this. How is that possible that they could get under it or in it? But they don't have much time to think because they must flee that castle of the giants. All I'll say is the lady sent them there to participate in the autumn feast, if you know what I mean. And they must run from this and they run and they find a cave that lets them get down under the ground. It lets them get under the ground and they end up in an entire country, an entire land that is underground. It's called the underworld. There are little funny looking guys that live there and they, the funny looking guys capture them and they take them on a very long journey underground. It's very dark. It's, you know, there's no natural light down there. They take them on a journey over an underground sea to the castle where the queen of the underworld lives. Now, the queen is not there when they get there, but guess who's there? The knight. The knight is there and greets them and talks in this very proper knightly language. But it's clear from his discussion that he is quite enamored with this queen and talks about her as if she is the bastion of morality, even though he says their plan is that they're going to take over and enslave another country. And the children are like, well, that's not really very nice. And they, it's like, and the the knight can't understand why they wouldn't think this because my lady will tell you that it is very important and she is going to make me the king and I will marry her. And so they talk to him for a bit and then he says that he is about to have to do something that he has to do every night because part of the enchantment he is under is he must spend one hour every day in the silver chair. And during that time that he is in the silver chair, he becomes a raving lunatic. Now, this is a picture of him in the silver chair. Um, he becomes a raving lunatic in that silver chair. Um, and he makes the children promise, whatever I ask, don't let me go. Because if you let me go, I'm going to try to trick you. And if you let me go, I'm going to turn into a serpent and kill you. Whatever you do, no matter what I say, don't let me go. And of course, they promise to do this. And he, they tie him to the chair and the enchantment comes on him, and he says, I'm Prince Rillian. The enchantment is that this is the only hour of the day that I remember who I really am. Please let me go. And now they know, the children know that he's trying to trick them, right? So they don't want to let him go. But then he says, in the name of Aslan, I beg you to let me out of this chair. So they have a whole discussion, which I wish I could go into it, because it's exactly how we think. They start talking about, oh, there goes the mic. They start talking about whether that could really be the sign or not because just because a crazy person says the words, is that really the sign? 
But after a long discussion, they decide that obedience is better, even if it costs them their lives. So they decide to let him go. They cut his bonds, and he is Prince Rillian. And it was really true that the only time that he was, knew who he was was in this chair. And he takes a sword and destroys the chair, calling it a vile uh, engine of sorcery. And I think the chair, the silver chair, represents going to church and sitting in a pew. Because it's like, you know, one hour a day, kind of like we go two or three, two hours in a week. And I think it represents if we go to church and just sit there and listen and absorb and do nothing with it when we leave, right? If that is the only time we remember who we are, what, what good have we done, right? It's a vile engine of sorcery because we are not to sit back and listen We need to do what we learn about. We teach different things, but we need to put those things into practice. James 1.22 says, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. And John 14.21 says, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love them and show myself to them. That was Jesus speaking directly. We come, we need to remember who we are during the week by actually doing what we've been talking about. Super easy way to do that is to read the Proverbs, right? Read the Proverbs, we've set it up, it's really easy. Do what we hear. So now, after they figure out who they are, they're all excited because it seems like their quest is going well, the queen comes back. And actually at this point we learn that she is actually a witch, the emerald witch. The queen comes back. She sees what has happened and very calmly goes over to a little cabinet, pulls out a handful of green powder, throws it in the fire, and a thick haze comes out from the powder. And it's a haze that makes their mind muddled. It makes their mind muddled. It makes them susceptible to the things she's going to say. She also picks up an instrument and is constantly thrumming the instrument while she talks. And what she tries to do is make them forget who they really are. They say, we, are, we, we come from the overworld. We come from Narnia, the land where there's a sun and a sky. And she says, remember, they're underground. She's like, there's no, that place doesn't exist. They say, no, no, we've seen it. We've seen the sun and the sky, which of course they have. And I think like some people will try to do to us, they try to say that can't be real. Listen to what the witch says. She says, what, what is the sun you speak of? Do you mean anything by that word? Can you tell me what it's like? Now remember, she's doing the instrument and the haze is in the air. And the prince says, please it, your grace. You see that lamp over there? It's round and yellow and gives light to the whole room and it hangs from the roof. Now that thing which we call the sun is like the lamp, only far greater and brighter. It gives light to the whole overworld and it hangs in the sky. Here's what the witch says, and being a science person, I hear this conversation in another way all the time. Hangs from what, my lord, said the witch. And then, while they were all still thinking how to answer her, she added with another of her soft silver laughs, you see, when you try to think out clearly what this sun must be, you cannot tell me. You can only tell me it is like the lamp. Your sun is a dream. And there is nothing in that dream that was not copied from the lamp. The lamp is the real thing the sun is but a tale, a children's story. Slowly and gravely, the witch repeated, there is no sun. 
and they all said nothing, she repeated in a softer and deeper voice, there is no son. And after a pause and a struggle in their minds, all of them said together, you're right, there is no son. It was such a relief to give in and to say it. It's because of the magic working on them. But God has warned us that there are those who will try to get us to fail in our mission. 2 Timothy 4.3 says, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine, with the truth. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Sounds like today, right? Lots of people to tell you things that you know are not true, and they sound good. And I will say they sound and seem beautiful, right? The, the witch is described as extremely beautiful. But we'll see in a second what her, we'll see in a second what she really is because the companion decides at his own pain of his own body to put the fire out by stamping on it with his bare feet. And the haze starts to dissipate and they start to come into their right mind again. And he did this. He sacrificed himself for the mission. And at this point, the witch's true nature, her true form comes out and she transforms into the serpent and attacks the prince. And uh, I would tell you what happens next, but I think you should read the story. I'll just remind you that the mission given by Aslan was you are to find the prince and return him to his father's house or die in the attempt to do so. But it's a really good book. But I think this is truth. And this is a great image to remember about the things like temptation that seem beautiful at the time. This is the true form. It is a snare out to get you. First Peter 5.8 says... Um, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Sin and disobedience to God's word is out there and it looks attractive, but it's, it really has very serious consequences. We need to remember that if we want to remember who we are during the week and not just on Sunday. So we've gone through a few things here, um, and I'd like to, I guess, um, say that the first, how we remember who we are in Christ, not just on Sunday, but during the week, we remember who we are in Christ by knowing his word, the Bible, and being able to quote it when tough times come, and that can help us to know what to do. We also remember who we are in Christ when we try to avoid distraction in our mission by especially the distraction of comfort. We remember who we are in Christ when we remember throughout the week that we are God's children and we need to be doers of the word, not just hearers only. We need to do what the word says and not just come on Sunday and say, yeah, isn't that nice? And then go about our lives. We remember who we are in Christ when we remember that God has told us that there are people out to deceive us and to have us stumble as they stumble. God's told us, man, people are out there looking to actively do you harm. Remember God's word. Remember the signs. We also remember who we are in Christ. When we remember that God has told us that there are people out. Ah, it helps if I turn the page. Yeah. Uh, we remember who we are in Christ when we run from evil or sin 
because we know that the consequences of sin are serious. They're serious. The Bible describes it as a lion out to devour us. It's not simple. It's not beautiful. It's alluring at the beginning. Now, the first step in all of this, I've enjoyed uh, sharing this book with you. I really recommend reading it. It's great. I actually recommend reading it in, um, in order, um, in the order of the books. They're great books. Um, but I encourage you that if you have not taken that first step of faith, you know, if you want to be one of the children of the overworld, one of the children of Narnia, the first step is placing your faith in Jesus. If you've never done that, feel free to talk to me after the service. I'll be in the back. But we need to remember as we go this week how we remember that we are on a mission from God. It's not just Sunday morning. It's the whole week long. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the mission that you've given us to talk to other people about you, to love other people and show them the love that you have shown to us. We pray that you'd make us bold this week to do so. We pray that you would be with us every day and that for us, our faith and who we are in your son, Jesus, is something we live and know every single day, not just on Sunday morning. Thank you for everyone who is here. In Jesus' name, amen.